and my fellow Pennsylvanians. This state's electoral votes are key to who wins the presidency, and both of the candidates know it. We win Pennsylvania, we win the whole deal, you know that. Just like last night. But states like Pennsylvania are going to be incredibly important. The only thing left on the board is Pennsylvania. The president cannot get to the finish line without the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. One state all four candidates are visiting today is Pennsylvania. Its 20 electoral votes are highly coveted, and the Keystone State could end up being one of the determining factors in the race. Jill's a Philly girl, but I'm a screen girl. As we prepare for the April 3rd Senate debate at Muhlenberg College, we're sitting down with diverse supporters of the candidates. Our last two episodes were with elected officials who are supporting the Fetterman and Kenyatta campaigns. Today, we sit down with Dr. Nina Ahmad, who wears many hats, but she's going to take us behind the scenes of how Connor Lamb secured the endorsement of the National Organization for Women. Dr. Ahmad appears on the cover of the latest issue of City and State, and she deserves it. She's a naturalized citizen with an inspiring journey, and she embodies what makes America great. Dr. Nina Ahmad, welcome to my kitchen table. Well, thank you so much. It's uh, lovely to sit down and chat with you again, Ari. It's been way too long. I remember first meeting you in Senator Casey's 2006 campaign, I want to say, and I was just so inspired and remain inspired by your life story, and, and certainly you've done a lot since 2006. So maybe you can just share with listeners, uh, we have lots of students who I don't even want to calculate how old they were in 2006, but... You just had an incredible life story. The best is yet to come, but share share a little with folks uh, this background. Absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me and uh, giving me some time to not only share my story, to talk about things that are of importance right now in our political landscape. You know, our democracy is at risk, so it's very important. We're all tuned in and paying attention. So your kind of podcast really helps for people to do that. And so I kudos to you and your group for doing this. And the reason I start with that is because my life story is really centered around fighting for freedom and democracy. <laughs> uh, my whole life is has been predicated on having lived through a war. I start every conversation with remembering those 3 million people who died during the independence war of Bangladesh. I was a young girl then. So I am alive because they fought for my freedom. And, and I also remember, which is, which is where my women's advocacy comes from. Not only am I, am I a woman myself, you know, those who are women and identify as women, it's um, critical to know that the role women play in war and how they're used as a tool of war. Over 250,000 women and girls were brutalized in that war. So that's a very significant number and, you know, fact that has stayed with me since I was a young girl. So that sort of has shaped my worldview, knowing that a small group of people, if they're determined, just like uh, Margaret Mead said, can make change, can make progress. And I saw that unfolding in front of my eyes. You know, the what's happening in Ukraine today was what was happening to us that many years ago when there were tanks rolling down our residential streets. There were people being mowed down who were on the streets. You know, we have a, in Bangladesh, there's a little 
rickshaw. It's like a cycle rickshaw that people use to go from place to place. And it's really a tricycle that uh, a human being rides and somebody sits on the back. And those are people who come from the villages and have uh, really no other means of employment. And this is the first employment they get. So many of them actually sleep on those rickshaws because it's warm outside. And those were people who were lying there that night when the military cracked down and they were just mowed down just for being in their little cycle rickshaw because they had no other place to sleep. So when I think about, you know, what people do and people fought back uh, furiously. And uh, these were doctors, you know, rickshaw pullers, uh, farmers, students, young people were very much involved who basically took up arms, who had never fought a day in their life. And uh, this was sort of a guerrilla warfare. They went over to the next country, which was helping us, which was India. And uh, they had camps there and people would come. I know of many old, you know, brothers and sisters, actually young women were involved too, who went into the, into this liberation army. And so that's a very meaningful episode in my life. And I think it does a couple of things for me. One has made me fiercely stand up when there's injustice. You know, I'm not afraid because I literally could be dead, could, should have died. Right. And two is, you know, when people are left behind, I think those who are marching forward need to, need to reach back and pull people along with themselves. You know, and never never pull up the ladder behind you. Always let it go down and help someone on that. So that's my frame of thinking. That's where I've come from. This is I was I was so eager for many reasons, uh, Nina, to to sit down and to catch up and to share with listeners as we head into this uh, Senate primary. But you know, to hear you. I get goosebumps hearing this. I think listeners do too. I just want to back up and give folks some context. The British pull out in the late 1940s from the Indian subcontinent in South Asia. And there's oversimplification here, but India is primarily a Hindu nation. Uh, Pakistan, with the current borders, as we know, it is primarily a Muslim nation. But then on the other side of India, there's what was East Pakistan, correct? Correct. Okay. And that became Bangladesh. Obviously, Bangladesh is a sovereign, important partner for for Washington. And this is all happening, just remind listeners, during President Nixon's term? Yes. So Nixon and Kissinger were literally sending arms to the genocidal army to kill us. (laughs) However, the people of the United States, particularly on the East Coast and unions, were standing strong. This is the uh, international, um, the Longshoremen's Association. They banded together with Quakers here in Pennsylvania and in the Baltimore ports. And people who were that from that part of the country who lived here who were at that point East Pakistanis. They were joined up forces and the Longshoremen actually uh, did a blockade, a symbolic blockade. So these folks, the peace, you know, the pe- people wanting peace, took little dinghies and went around these massive boats, which were ships, not boats, massive ships that were carrying arms. And the longshoremen did a work stoppage. So there was no loading and unloading. And all this went on for a few months. And this was costing, you know, union workers actual wages, right? They were, they were participating in this disobedience to make a point. And this is when the Congress in the United States started to know about it. And Senator Kennedy got very involved and they actually stopped arms from going from here. So this had an impact. It was towards the end. It was only in a nine month war, but that's 
when you know when I hear about this, and I, there's actually a documentary called The Blockade about this whole issue. That's when I understood that unions. I became a very strong union supporter, knowing that unions who had no idea who I was or who we were across the world uh, were standing up because there was oppression. And union is really, to me, is there to stop oppression of workers. And this is. They extended that to stop oppression of people, right? So I, I was deeply moved by knowing that people across the world were fighting in whatever way they could to stand with us. So thank you for that. I, I learned so much as a host of this podcast. Uh, and we've had dozens and dozens of guests, and it's often I'm learning about some Pennsylvania factoid, but I, I didn't realize that uh, incredible um important uh, historical item of the longshoremen. Okay, so at what point then did uh, you, and was it you alone or you and your family, uh, come to the United States? So I came in 1980, so long ago, <laughs> 1980. So I came to school here, and I first was in Michigan in 1980, finished my, un- I had a three-year undergrad, and then I came to University of Pennsylvania for my PhD in chemistry. And that's when I you know, started living here and never left. I was one of those people that Governor uh, Rendell always spoke about, you know, keeping our students. I was one of them and um, loved Philadelphia. Uh, You know, Philadelphia looks a lot different now than it looked then. I remember driving up South uh, Broad Street and looking at all those cars parked in the median and I was looking at this like, wow, because Michigan is completely different, right? <laughs> Even around Detroit, it's completely different. And uh, I was most impressed that uh, people could park anywhere, literally. <laughs> that was the first impression I had. And it was very hot and very muggy when I uh, drove into Penn, but it had that gritty feel. This is sounding like Bangladesh with, with people parking anywhere and hot and muggy. <laughs> Yes, it was hot and muggy and crowded and and people were just kind of going everywhere. And I just felt at home, you know, since then, even though it had troubles and issues, but I'm no stranger to troubles and issues. So So let let, let me ask you, you obviously, because the country that you were born into no longer exists and you, you faced, you know, so social justice was clearly your North Star early on in life, but Plunging into Michigan with the 1980 Reagan election. I mean, when, at what point did you kind of get the American political bug? Oh, right away, because we were, I was watching over there and thinking, oh, what is happening? Why is, I, I remember thinking why Carter was not messaging better. <laughs> that was a very initial thought for me. Like, here's a good man trying to do good things. And here was a conniving <laughs> Reagan, uh, an actor who knows how to put on a good show. And this whole Iran, you know, the hostage thing just went awry. And I was just thinking, you know, you have to f- fight fire with fire. And that was not happening. I felt that the Democrats were not fighting in the way they needed to. And uh, so that was my first sort of introduction to American politics and watching. And then, you know, I remember another election when Dukakis ran and and they Bush did that whole Willie Horton ad. And I'm thinking, people, you got to you got to fight. You can't just lay over and let them walk over you because we didn't do that. And uh, so I, I definitely speak my mind and fight for what I believe in, even if I know it, I might not 
be the winner in that fight, but I have to stand on my principles and uh, fight for what I believe in. If I, you know, and I, I will query my belief. I will listen to you or someone else tell me something. Otherwise, I will take that all into consideration, understand my data, do the analysis, and then come to, and this is my scientist in me, sort of, you know, always making sure that I have actual data backing up what I'm thinking, but there's also an emotional core to all of that. So you put it all together, you get me. Well, I'm always intrigued, and I think listeners are too, and we're going to get to politics uh, soon enough, but we can't have politics without the ability to vote. And I'm always intrigued talking to naturalized citizens, first-generation Americans, about your citizenship uh, ceremony. And uh, where, 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 where and when did that happen? Did it happen in Philadelphia? So that was here in, in Pennsylvania. And uh, that actually, they appoint, I don't know, out of the blue, I got a letter saying, would I be the speaker for my naturalization ceremony? They appoint someone from that, at least they used to, from the crop of people getting uh, naturalized, they would appoint someone to speak on behalf of the naturalization citizens, uh, those who were going to become citizens. And I remember that was probably my first real speech in, and this was in front of a judge and it was very formal. I was like, Oh my Lord. And uh, so I, I started my speech. I don't remember all of it, but it was that, you know, it's peculiar that people are referred to as resident aliens. That's what a green card holder is known as. And, um, you know, trust me to start with something saying, maybe there's a different way to, to, to use a different term to, to refer to human beings, but uh, I, I got a lot of good applause and people liked I didn't know anyone. It was just a bunch of strangers who were there, but we all clicked and talked afterwards, and it was very nice. It was a very nice way to, to begin as a, as a citizen in this country, and I deeply value that, and I deeply value Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. I mean, I'm so thankful for being able to have a home here, to raise a family, to work here, to be educated. You know, that has been such an equalizer, getting a good education. And I can't stress enough, whether you're, you know, you go into a vocational training or you go into a four-year college after high school, I think it's critical. We have pathways for our children to consider. It's just broadening your mind, whatever it is you do. The pathway of thinking differently is what you really get from education if you, if, 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 if you get a good one, where it makes you think, it makes you think on your feet and, you, and make, especially as a scientist, you have to follow your hypothesis. And if it's not proven, you actually learn something. So from mistakes are something you learn from. And I think that's a healthy way to look at life. And then you can pick up your pick yourself up and keep going. So I was very, very fortunate and I'm very grateful to Philadelphians for their warmth, for Pennsylvania, for giving me a home. I don't know anything about science, I'll be honest. <laughs> the last time was uh, 11th grade, Parkland High School in Lehigh County that I took a science class and uh, that was that was upward of two decades ago. So what lessons would you say you've seen every facet of Pennsylvania politics? You've been each and every county. What 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 surprised you most? There has to be some some data points that you had no idea that you So what didn't surprise me, and I I thought this was to, going to be true, was that people are the same everywhere. Doesn't matter if it's, you know, Butler County or it's Philadelphia County or it's Montgomery or it's Berks or it's Lackawanna, where I spent a lot of time, you know, people are fundamentally 
the same. And I think as a scientist, I can really understand that. In this country, you know, race has been weaponized greatly. And this, of course, comes from the history of having enslaved people to build this country. So, but when you take away that layer, outward layer that defines our features and what we look like, we're really so much the same. We all want to be safe, to be loved, to have a place to live. And for if we have children to have them have a better life than we have. This is a fundamental truth, true everywhere. How you get to that and how, how much you fight for that is sometimes determined by the soil that you fall on, right? If you, if you are happened by the circumstance of birth to be in X place versus Y, those determinants can make your path a certain way. But in spite of that, and this is where I look at what structural racism has done to this country, the impediments that have been placed in people's pathway in order to achieve what I just said, you know, to be loved, to love, and to have a place and have, you know, a way to go forward. I find that to be the original sin that really needs to be grappled with. And as a scientist, I can tell you there's that implicit bias that comes into how you develop a piece of equipment. And I don't know if you know the the way you measure your uh, oxygen, you know, the little pulse oximeter you put on your finger. Even that has problems if, the, if you have too much melanin because when it was developed, it was not developed with a range of people, right? These are little things. This is why people were, uh, some people we're not getting adequate treatment because they were getting a false reading for their oxygen level. That's life and death, right? And so this is what I mean by fundamentally deconstructing racism. It means in every facet because of the way it was weaponized to divide people and use a group of people for the betterment of the other without them getting any benefit of that. And because I live through oppression of a different kind, I'm keenly sensitive to that. So any policy decisions has to be very intersectional, whether we're looking at, if you're looking at racism, we must make include gender, we must include ethnicity, we must include all these lens to look at if our policy is addressing all people that fall within that. So to your original question, people are the same everywhere, yet there are differences because of the ways a country has evolved. And this is where I see the racism being a real issue and how people view each other uh, without deconstructing why. And I'm very interested in that. Thank you. That was a, an incredible perspective. But my understanding is you're also very interested and focused on uh, women's equality in, in this country. And you've taken on a leadership role with the National Organization of Women in Pennsylvania. So this is, I think, going to be the second half of our conversation. If we can kind of pivot in that direction, we've we've done a whirlwind from South Asia geopolitics to your incredible life story uh, from one purple state to another. But give listeners a sense of now in Pennsylvania and how you got linked up with uh, this organization. All right. You know, as I said, my worldview was shaped by watching women being used as a tool of war. So that's always been there. And I've always you know, seen how women were discriminated against just because they were women, whether it was your salary, whether, I mean, I experienced that myself going through graduate school here, all of it, you know, it's, it's always there. And um, now the national organization for women, just to be clear, it's not off women, it's for women. 
Um, we have men as well. Uh, Apologies. Okay. No, no, no problem. This is a common mistake. I just uh, want to make sure your listeners know it is the National Organization for Women, which is one of the oldest grassroots organizations for uh, women's rights. And we are multi-issue, which makes us different from other organizations who might work on one specific aspect of things. We have six major issues that we work with. And, you know, obviously, reproductive justice, racial justice, economic justice, constitutional equality. We're still working on the ERA, LGBTQ rights. So we have, because it's multi-issues, it was attractive to me because I don't know if you know the famous uh, definition of intersectionality that Professor Kimberly Crenshaw had put out which was understanding the different intersections of oppression people might feel and how you deconstruct that, right? So that's why now is very was attractive to me because it looked at people in a multidimensional way. It wasn't just you're just a woman or you're a black person or a brown person because you're all of those things at the same time. And how those identities intersect to give you the experience that you have is what we're looking at. And how do, do we make sure that the experience you're having as a white man uh, in this world and afforded opportunities should be the same that I should get as a brown woman in this world as well. So that's why now is attractive to me. I served on the board for one term and then I actually ran for office. So I resigned that position, but I, I stayed engaged. I chaired their audit committee right now for the national organization, but I was Prior to that, I was the president of Philadelphia now, and that's when we'd had that whole issue around Porngate, if you remember, when uh, Seth Williams was the district attorney. There were three prosecutors, ADAs, who came from uh, the state attorney general's office where there had been a whole to-do around state servers being used to pass pornography and other very demeaning material. And those three people came here and now took on this issue with Seth Williams to say, why are you letting these people sit who think so little of women and they're the ones who, and, and other people, the other people, and they are sitting in judgment of what is going to be prosecuted as a rape case or not? How does that make sense? So we actually mobilized the city council women to hold a press conference. I remember Senator Anthony Williams getting involved at the state level. He's the first one to hold a hearing and I, I was invited there and it was, it, got legs because our thought was you can't have public officials supposed to do public service having these thoughts about people and, you know, segregating people along uh, along what value they were giving them. And then they were sitting in judgment of what they were, how, what, how we would receive justice. So that was a big deal. Uh, we, you know, we were able to mobilize a lot around that. And so, I brought that fighting spirit, I think, and not being afraid because people were very afraid to stand up to, a, at that time, a very popular district attorney who was a friend. You know, I, I'm, I really like Seth Williams. And I remember having conversations. I still very like him very much. But this was an issue that needed to be addressed. So this is what we are finding that we still have to be that voice for advocacy where other people might be a nonprofit so they can't talk about it. We're a C4 and a PAC and have a nonprofit arm, but we have the ability to be in places and say things that other groups may not. And we're happy to take up that fight for on behalf of others. So 
that's what we're doing here. We just did a thing around SEPTA, around the rape on SEPTA and held SEPTA accountable. We're actually, this is an ongoing thing. We did a rally and a, a solidarity ride from the 15th Street Station to 69th where this happened. We had elected officials, SEPTA officials, you know, all of them. And we had a list of demands, some of them that they're working on. We're working with the union, uh, TWU, to talk around these issues. So it takes some real deep relationship building and work to say, how do we make sure the least amongst us is getting getting taken care of, then all of us on top are going to get taken care of. That's the thinking behind this model. This is really important uh, work. It's a, a certainly very insightful perspective. Uh, you alluded to grassroots, you alluded to advocacy, you've used uh, the term we. So give listeners a sense across Pennsylvania. I don't know if you refer to them as members or um, what, what. what's the composition? Yeah, so we're actually, uh, the national organization right now is retooling our platform to really count our members properly to make sure everybody's dues are paid. Our website still says 13,000, but I know there's less than that. So we're, we're coming to a final count. And that's what we just got elected in January. And that's one of our goals is to really uh, revitalize chapters and also do a proper count of who actually is a paying, dues paying member. I know it's in the thousands. So is Pennsylvania a chapter or within Pennsylvania? There's. Pennsylvania chapter is in the thousands, Uh but what that number is, I want, you know, I can't tell you for sure, because that's what's happening right now. They're changing platforms to assess that, and we'll be given that information. So we get our update from our national as to who, what that database looks like. But it's in the thousands, and you know now members are, are used to taking up fights and uh, used to being um, leading the way. Sometimes that where, uh, you know, conventional wisdom might not, and conventional wisdom doesn't mean it's conservative wisdom. It means what people expect of you. Uh, we don't always do what is expected of us. And um, so because we talk, we, we do a deep dive, we do our research, we uh, engage with whatever the issue or person might be, and then come up with a, a decision that people actually vote on. These are not me just making an arbitrary decision being the president. This is people weighing in and they're actually voting on things. And then we're taking a stand on issues. So it's an active and uh, you know vibrant organization that we're trying to make sure stays vibrant across 67 counties, which is not the case right now. I think we're like in can't remember off the top. I have to look at my data, but at least 20 counties. But we want to amplified that. There are a few members here and there who don't have chapters and they belong to the you know, the whole Pennsylvania now, but then, then we have the Philadelphia chapter, we have the Montgomery chapter, we have, you know, Beaver County chapter. So they have their own organization as well as being part of the, the whole statewide chapter. And then we all belong to the national. Even if, uh, as you're updating dues-paying members, you're off by 50%, which I don't think you are, Nina. I mean, that's still a lot of grassroots committed activists. It's a lot of people. And even if it's only around 20 counties, that, that's still an impressive uh, army. So you use uh, the term research and you use the term fight. So there's hopefully not too much of a bruising fight over the next two months leading up to May 17th in the Pennsylvania primary. And clearly there was a research over the last few weeks, maybe last few months, but we're going to plunge in as we wind down. You've been super grateful with your time, but your organization endorsed Connor Lamb's Senate campaign. 
And I think listeners would be very curious to hear about the genesis of that and then ultimately what it's going to mean uh, as we shift into get out the vote and uh, even early voting. So uh, so just from a personal perspective, I actually, I know Val Arkush and I know Malcolm Kenyatta and their friends, right? And I did not know Connor Lamb. I don't, you know, I'm not friends with him as I was with these two. And he actually was, he's the nephew of the person I ran against when I ran for Auditor General. He was my key, chief uh, opponent in the primary, which was all very civil. And I had a real sense of who Michael Lamb was. And I saw Connor had stood up and endorsed his uncle and all of that. It was, but all very, very genuine and uh, real, right? So when this race happened, it started with Fetterman announcing first, then Malcolm, then Val. And much later, Connor came in in August, right? And so we were, uh, the we had an issue with Fetterman and his vigilante ex, which was never addressed or no apologies given because racism, anti-racism, a big platform in our six issues, we were already leery of that situation because there was no, no, no one ever accounted was held accountable for that vigilante act. Nonetheless, we were open to everyone. People usually request our endorsement, uh, our application, they fill it up, and then uh, we do a process where we review that, and then we ask ask them to come to an interview. It's very detailed. The form is very detailed. The questionnaire is very detailed, and the interview is very detailed. And in between, we do our homework, of course. And so, so the Val and Malcolm and Lamb were the three who applied for our endorsement. And we did all, this was before Val had decided not to run, but we did our due diligence. We had our interviews and, um. Well, I just want to clarify. So Lieutenant Government, Governor Fetterman didn't. Nope. He didn't complete the questionnaire. He didn't pursue an endorsement. Nope. So, I mean, this has been a pattern of not engaging with grassroots. So I'm not surprised. And then the, then Val, withdrew. So we were down to two people to consider. And uh, this is when, when we talked to Connor, he started his conversation with speaking about the time when he was a Marine prosecutor. And his job was to prosecute sexual assaults in the military. And he shared with us, he deeply understood how unfair and what the imbalance was for women, particularly in the military, because most of the people he was, issues, the cases he was prosecuting, the victims were women and the perpetrators were, you know, officials who were usually higher in their position to the women. And the juries were mostly all male. So this was a very difficult scenario. And he really got a firsthand taste of what it felt like when you didn't have, you were second class in society, in that small society, right? And we did our homework. He didn't tell us this, but he had a very seminal case he won of a military officer who for six years was able to stave off being found, being con- off conviction till Connor came along and convicted him. And not only did he do that, there was an ethics inquiry. There was some another board that had failed. He really bucked the system to... Uh, advocate for those people who was victimized by this man. And that that's how he started off his conversation with us, right? To say that he understood what we were fighting for uh, because he's done that fight. And then he proceeded to tell us, which we also confirmed, you know, he's part of the women's protection 
act that is on the floor right now. It's the, it's the house has passed it and the Senate, hopefully when he's in it, will vote for it. And he's, we asked him very directly about what is your position on choice, right? People paint you as X. What if they're, and keep saying it's the law of the land, we'll uphold it. What if there's no law of the lands? What if Roe v. Wade was up, uh, overturned? And that's when he talked about the fact that he fundamentally believes in a woman's right to choose. There was no equivocation about it. This was very clear for us. This was a major litmus test, and he was very clear. And he, we have other data that shows he says that. And that he is one of the sponsors for the Women's Protection Act. So that was very important. And third, he was actually part of the Momnibus that was part of the Build Back Better, where Lauren Underwood has is the main sponsor. He's one of the co-sponsors. This actually was started by Kamala Harris, our current VP, talking about maternal mortality of Black mothers, right, very specifically. And he's a part of that. He knows about that. He understands the issues around that. So as we dug into his background, we did our homework before. He confirmed a lot of our things. We found him off the three people. And, in you know, Val obviously has a lot of experience. He's an OBGYN. But the way Connor was able to share with us how his worldview was impacted and what the values, how his values were impacted by this, these experiences and participating in them was very meaningful to us. And then he talked about, you know, in 2018, he was against a tax cut for which was really hurting the middle class. And he got pilloried for that. And currently he's a sponsor of making sure that union dues can be on the tax, restore tax deduction for union dues, right? He's the one who did the House version and Senator Casey, along with others, did the Senate version. And so we got a real sense of places that impact women's health, their economic status. He has been on the right side of those issues for us. And not only just in words, but he's actually done things. And so we were very pleased to see that while we really liked the other people, but we saw real movement and he understood that he's a white man with privilege and how he was using his privilege was very important. And then we did the analysis of, you know, electability, viability, all of that. And he stood the test of all of that. So when you put it all together and then people voted on it, he came out to be the overwhelming favorite for us to recommend to our national PAC. Our national PAC makes the final decision. We don't. We can give a recommendation. They don't have to follow it. They usually do because we know our candidates better. And so they decided to endorse him. So that's the story of Lamb's endorsement. Well, I think our listeners would love to be a fly on the wall during these this various PAC endorsement, grassroots member organization endorsement meetings. And you just gave a lot, a lot of insight. So, so thank you. So what does this all mean? You know, in the final sprint to May 17th, petitions have been submitted, debates are beginning. So how, how does your membership get mobilized? So first thing is one of the reasons why we even were looking at viability was this is a critical seat, this Senate seat to add to the making it the 50 you know, to have 53 seats for the Democrats, right? So we're very serious that this Pennsylvania, we must win this. 
and we must win it. And who is the best one to be able to get through the primary, but then survive in the general? So that's also a really important consideration for us. And um, so given that women are 51% of our population, both the state and the nation, and yet we have so many things we need to finish doing. We are going to mobilize big time. You know, we don't have a lot of money or resources as a grassroots group, but we're going to do whatever it takes for us to do fundraising, do uh, mobilizing on the ground, knocking doors, sending, you know, if we have the ability to print flyers and door, you know, our own a set of issues uh, getting it to our members, but more than members, we want our members to share it with their families, with their other networks that they belong to. And if we can give them a cogent case that they can make to their friends and family, we're going to be that value add for Connor Lamb. We're not going to, you know, we, we can't make him win, right? But we can be that narrow wedge if there's, if it's close, uh, we can do that. But in the general, I think, as a whole different ball game, uh, we have to just mobilize and work with every group there is on the ground to make sure that Democrats win this seat. And we are determined to be, <laughs> to make sure it's in the Democratic column. Well, Dr. Nina Ahmad, you've been super generous with your time. Thank you uh, for being in the arena. As President Teddy Roosevelt used to say, the credit belongs right there. So thank you so much. Thank you. And it was a pleasure talking to you. I know we had a long conversation, uh, but as you can see, I'm a scientist who wants you to have all the facts. <laughs> so, so I'm sorry if I went on too long. Well, facts are stubborn things, but apparently in Washington these days, there's alternative facts. But thank you for providing the, uh, the facts. So, Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to a special episode of Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. Please join us for future episodes by subscribing, and while you're at it, give us a rating and a review. We love listener feedback, so drop us a note via our website, papoliticspodcast.org. And a very special thanks to Jake Schwartz for all his production assistance. I'm Ari Middleman, and this is Pennsylvania Kitchen Table Politics. <laughs>